Isaiah chapter 40, if you would please. I'm going to start at verse 27. But I like verse number 1 of this chapter. I don't have in front of me the old King James Bible, but in Africa, where I've been many times, we would teach all day long at pastor's conferences, and we'd have to have some tea breaks you know, throughout the day. And so we would quote the old King James Version of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1, And if you have the old King James, this is what it says. It says, come for tea, my people. Come for tea. (laughs) Aww. (laughs) Bad joke, isn't it? (laughs) Comfort ye, my people. But I don't have the old King James in front of me. But I do want to pick it up, starting in verse number 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel... My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint beautiful scripture isn't it this chapter the whole chapter of Isaiah chapter 40 addresses a deep need that God's people are experiencing. We've already in the last few Sundays discussed a little bit of what it means to wait upon the Lord. You remember that verse from chapter 64, the Lord acts for those who wait for Him. And that's what makes God God, is that He's a Savior. He's a comforter. And what makes him different than all the other so-called gods that people have invented in their imagination is that our God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he acts for those who wait for him. That's what makes him different than all the demons and all the idols is he acts for those who wait for him. We have seen a few comments already from Isaiah, what it means to wait on the Lord. We have seen it means to entrench, dig yourself, entrench yourself into God while you're waiting for Him to perform His promise. It means that while you're waiting for the promise to come to pass, that every day you are actively choosing the Lord. He chose you. Now He wants you every day 
to choose Him. It means that you are embracing righteousness with joy while you are waiting. It's not just putting in time, but it's preparing yourself and getting yourself aligned up for the fulfillment of His promise. Since God said it's going to be that way, you might as well get your life ready for when it happens and you get your life aligned with the fulfillment of His promise. And every day you're choosing that while you are waiting for the Lord. Now, historically, when this passage, chapter 40, was written, maybe the Israelite was confused. Things had happened in their history that they thought cast doubt about God's compassion, about God's nature, about God's ability. After all, if God is so powerful, then why did the Babylonians defeat them? If God is so powerful, why were they carried away into captivity? Has God got no power against the pagan nations? Has He been defeated by the people's own sinfulness? And they're confused because they've been through a difficult, hard trial. Has anybody ever been confused because you've gone through a hard trial? Anybody? You know, I mean, it's it's human nature to, when we go through these things, to start saying, God, are you not noticing? God, do you not care? God, can you not do anything about it? And if you can, why are you not doing something about it? Anybody ever going to confess to such thoughts? You know, and it seems in this chapter, the people have gone through a very, very difficult time. And it's really brought a crisis of faith to them. Had God forsaken them? The trial has made them weary, and they were losing the strength and the will to continue. And this chapter is meant to address that need in his people. Now, in the first 11 verses, which I'm not going to dwell much on, because we've taught on this in time past, prepare ye the way of the Lord, And I'm not going to touch on that, except I just want to touch on a couple of things in verses 1 and verse number 2. In these first 11 verses, there are four things here that even after difficult times and even after judgment, the will of God is to restore. You should shout amen at that. Even after He chastises us, if that's necessary, a lot of times it is, Even after he has to deal with us, the fact is, after all that, his heart is to restore. Amen. That's our God. His heart is to restore. And these verses, verses 1 through 11, will teach us that he will restore by being personally involved with your life personal intervention. He doesn't just send angels, he himself gets involved in restoring of your life. These verses also will teach us that nothing, whether human or otherwise, can ever stop God from bringing restoration in your life. And these verses also teach us that while He's got the power to do it, He does it because He's compassion. Oh, come on. He does it because He's compassion. Those are the first 11 verses. Teach that. But I just want to look at verses 1 and 2 where it begins with comfort ye, comfort ye, or comfort 
Yes, bring comfort to my people, says God. This whole chapter about restoration and comfort really begins with God's tenderness. It begins on a very warm and a very affectionate note. God is reminding His people to remember that no matter what you've been through, how what difficult situations you've been through, He is ultimate kindness. And He is ultimate tenderness. And even when you and I are tempted to think God hasn't taken note of the trial that I'm in, when we are in deep affliction, God still calls them my people. Hear that word, my? My people. And he wants to refer to himself as your God. That's good. He's not speaking in a scornful way because there are times in Isaiah when he referred to the people as this people. But in restoration, he doesn't say, well, this people. He says, my people. He's in covenant. The word comfort here, it expresses, if you do a word study on this word comfort, as it's used in the Old Testament, it speaks of the kind of compassion that you will express to somebody who's grieved over the death of a family member. That's how that word is most often used in the Old Testament, that word comfort. It's the kind of compassion you're going to express to somebody who's grieved over the death of a family member. It's used in Genesis 24 that after the death of his mother, Isaac was comforted with the coming of Rebekah into his life. It's the word that Jacob said after he heard about Joseph. He refused to be comforted. It's not, I'm not going to go to my grave comforted. You know, he's fighting it a little bit. It's used that way. But this is all about God expressing His tender compassion to people who are just weary going through a trial. Comfort. My people. God wants to speak affectionately. In verse number 2 it says, Speak comfort to Jerusalem. If I was to put that in a little more modern English, what God is saying is speak to the heart of the people. Speak to their heart. This word is used in Scripture again to is, is to speak kindly to people, is to speak tenderly to people that you love. Is the word that Joseph used at the end of the book of Genesis when he, his brothers were afraid of him once Joseph had revealed he was the prime minister of Egypt. It says that Joseph spoke comfortably to them. In, in all cases, as this word is used in the scripture, it refers to speak to somebody whose heart has become paralyzed by their circumstances their trials have overtaken them, has taken their heart prisoner. And this word comfort means we're going to speak to people who are paralyzed by what they've been through to take heart and to believe. So it says, comfort my people. That's what this 
is all about. That's the only thing I want to make comment out of the first 11 verses. That is the goal of this chapter. Now let's skip down to verse number 12 of this chapter. And in the first 11 verses, we are answering the question, does God care about our situations? When we get overwhelmed with the difficulties in life, when we pray and it appears that God is not listening, when we're asking God to do things and it appears that nothing is happening and you are going through the pain and no matter what you do that pain is very real and we just get weary the first 11 verses answer the question does God even take note of these things does God even care that we're going through these things and the answer in the first 11 verses is of course he does no matter how you feel don't believe your emotions God does care that's the truth Starting in verse number 12, it's not so much as does God care. The question being answered in verse 12 is, can God fulfill his promises? Is he able to follow through in what he said he would do? This is a powerful portion of Hebrew poetry. The pictures that Isaiah draws are immense. And as we read through this, I would really like you to use your imagination and in your mind's eye, create these pictures about God's ability and God's tenderness and God's compassion. These verses are going to show us in the strongest terms that there is nobody like the Lord, either in creation or in history. That no matter what picture we can draw is never good enough He is utterly beyond comparison, especially to other so-called gods or idols. It is plain that such a god as we're going to read about can do exactly whatever he wants to do. He begins with some rhetorical questions to show you that the Lord is unique. There is none like him. He is one. He's the sole creator. He's behind nature. He's just not part of nature. He is a personal being that transcends the universe. This is the God that we worship. Now, verse number 12, it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Maybe you should put your hand like that. And you should look at the little hollow of your hand. And all that is saying is, well... God fit all the oceans of the earth in that thing. Wow. I mean, Darla and I went on a cruise about a year ago, the only one we've been in, and we were in the middle of the ocean. And I tell you, all you could see any direction that you looked was water. Miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of it. I mean, long past our ability to see it was there. And God says... When he wants to look at the oceans, he just looks at them. There they are. I mean, that's how big he is. This is how big he is. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or measured the heaven with a span or a ruler? He just go like that. That's the God doing that with his finger. He says, oh, there's the galaxies. You know, I'll just make them out like that. This is a big God, isn't it? 
It says, who has measured the heavens with a ruler or with a span. He's calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. He weighs the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. The obvious answer to such rhetorical questions is this can refer to nobody except God. He is shown in his creation. And God must be infinitely above what you and I can think to have arranged a universe in such perfection and order. The earth and the waters and the heavens are so proportionate to each other that any intelligent observer must be struck with the majesty of the whole thing. Now, if that's all in the hollow of his hand, would you please tell me, back in verse number 10 of the same chapter, when it talks about him burying his arm, <laughs> what must his arm be like? What is his ability to save? When he wants to move muscles on your behalf, what must it be like if he contains the whole oceans of the world in the hollow of his hand? I mean, this is powerful imagery. This is mind-boggling of the greatness and the vastness of it. It says he's measured out the heavens with a spanner or with a ruler. He even calculates the weight of the earth in a measure. Now that word measure is interesting because it actually refers to a household item that you would find in your house. It actually refers to a bucket. That's interesting. A bucket. It's about a three-gallon bucket that you would find. I don't know what that is in liters, but a three-gallon bucket that you would find in your house. And maybe when you peel your potatoes, the, the peelings go in the bucket. Or when you want some water, you just go get it in this bucket. And God says, well, all the mountains, vastness of the earth, just in my bucket. Think about that. I mean, you're never going to see anything more beautiful than the Canadian Rockies. Most majestic mountains in the world. They're better than anything you'll find anywhere. I tell you. You know, but when you consider the vast creation of the world and the vast mountain ranges, God says, that's just in my bucket in my house. I mean, it's just nothing to Him. It's just, what a powerful thing. God, He says, He, he weighs them all out in a pair of scales. All proportion. He's got it all measured out and figured out and on the hall of it. This is our God. This is the God that we have worshipped this morning. He's almighty God, do we understand? Because your and my temptation always to look at the trial instead of the God who's compassionate and tender and kind and more than able. Isn't that the temptation that we always have is be preoccupied with the difficulty instead of the vastness of God. Verse number 13, since we can't measure out even His creation, it says, who has directed or who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor to teach Him? If you and I can't measure God's creation, how can we measure God Himself, who did the creating? Who directed the Spirit of God to brood over the face of the deep in Genesis? Who can tell what to do? Who was advising God on what to do when he put together all creation? Obviously, nobody. Nobody. Verse number 14, with whom did he take counsel? 
Who instructed him? Who taught him the path of what is right and what is wrong? Justice. Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Who has the ability to tell God how to do things? Now, there's a lot of people who would like to tell God how to do things. But who's got the ability to do any of those things? Who has shown God what is right and what is wrong and the right way to administer the affairs of the universe? Nobody can possibly even begin to imagine that they're capable of such a thing. Verse 15, it says, Behold, in modern English, it's better put in this way, In fact... Who can direct God? He says, let me tell you what I think about the nations of the earth. Let me tell you what I think about the mighty Egyptian empire in the Old Testament. Let me tell you what I think about the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. Let me tell you what I think about the United Nations. Let me tell you what I think about the great British Empire and the USSR and the great allies. And let me tell you what I think about all of these massive world powers that are fighting for the control of the whole world. Listen to what God has to say about them. He says, who's going to teach me? Well, let me put this in perspective for you. The nations are nothing but a drop in a bucket. Wow. I mean, I want you to picture yourself getting water out of a deep well. And you lower the bucket down to get a bucket of water out of the well. And as you pull it up, a drop of water spills out back into the well. And God says, and that is even more influence than the nations of this world have on me. They're nothing but a drop in the bucket. We serve a mighty God. An amazing, mighty God. Then he says they're counted. These mighty nations that wanted throw their armies around the world and conquer the whole world, God says, tell you what, in perspective to me, they're just like small dust on the scales. Small dust on the scales. Can you imagine weighing, like he already talked about weighing the mountains of the earth in his scales? Think of the bigness and the majesty of the largest mountain range you've ever seen in your, in, in your lifetime. And God's got them all in. Now let's see what effect the nations have on that. And just take a speck of dust and put it on the scale and see if it moved the scale any doesn't move the scale at all. Count it as nothing. The scale doesn't even flutter. In other words, God is saying what these nations of the world attempt to do is not even enough cause for me to flutter my eyes at. It's nothing to me. Their ability to govern history is absolutely nothing to me. I can weigh up all the continents... And it amounts to about the same effect as a piece of dust on the scale. God is infinitely far greater than anything of this world. In verse number 16, he chooses one country, Lebanon. And he probably chooses the country of Lebanon because Lebanon is a small country and is probably chosen on purpose because to represent the smallness of the whole world. 
before God. He says, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor is beast sufficient for a burnt offering. Now you take all the vast cedar forests that you can find in the country of Lebanon, and if you cut them all down for wood to make sacrifices to the Lord, the fact is, after you've sacrificed all the forests of the world, it is simply not enough to give what God deserves. If you were to take every beast in that country and use it for a burnt offering, it's not enough. It doesn't put God under any kind of obligation and you have paid far less than your debt. God is infinitely bigger than that. He would say it straightforward in verse number 17. All the nations before Him are as nothing. They are counted by him, not just nothing, but listen to this. How can you be less than nothing? As far as their ability to govern what's going on in this world, think they can have their way. I've got news for the United Nations. I've got news for every king, queen, prime minister, president, dictator in the world. God happens to be in control, and you can boast your egos if you want, it doesn't even make God flutter his eyelids. Because as far as God concerned, your ability to control history is not just not able. You are less than nothing. The nations need to learn that it is God who sets them up and it is God who puts them down. The mighty nations, all of them that try to control for the world, are simply that which is not. If I could give you a different translation, it says they don't even exist. They're just chaos and they're just emptiness. The God that you and I worship this morning is of a completely different order. The nations aren't on the same plane as existence as the God that you and I worship this morning. So in verse number 18, we're, we're trying to find pictures. Well, How are we going to describe God? How can we describe Him? To whom will you liken God? With what likeness will you compare to Him? No matter what pitch you come up with, it's always inadequate. God is unique. He's completely incomparable. Is there anything from creation that can help us understand the majesty of God? There's no picture that's going to give you the fullness of everything that God is. And then verses 19 and 20, He's going to make the remark, and the silliest attempt of all, of anybody to come up with a picture of what God is like, is to create an idol. Lifeless, unable to stand on its own. How silly. He's a big God. Then you get to verse number 21, he asks again, Have you not known? Because you, we, we tend to cry out in our weariness sometimes. And so we're being reminded, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Careful thought about the origins of the universe must point to a creator beyond creation itself. Creation couldn't begin itself, that's for sure. The prophet can't help but just burst out his thoughts. How could anybody possibly not know these things when they see the majesty of what God has created? How big is He? 
How big is this God that we serve? Verse number 21 begins to spell out some of the implications. It says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. What does that mean? It means the God that you and I have worshipped this morning is not of this world. The Bible teaches that His throne that He sits on sits above the circle of the earth. It's above the vault of the sky that seems to arc over the earth from one horizon to another. He's enthroned even above the zenith of the whole thing. He's above the world. He's not part of it. And from his perspective, because that's where he rules, when he looks upon the nations, when he looks upon the mighty world leaders and all of their armies, the next phrase in verse 22 is says, this is what, how they appear to him. His inhabitants are just like grasshoppers. How many know a grasshopper is easily frightened? Isn't that right? You just walk into a field of grasshoppers and they just want to immediately jump away. Says God, all these mighty nations are just like grasshoppers to me. You know, it says he stretches out the heavens like a curtain. You know, let's draw the curtain. That's how God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, it's just the language is so strong and so powerful here. What is the, the, the heavens to him? It's just a curtain. That's all it is. Just a curtain. He's got buckets in his house. He's got curtains in his house. You know, it's just... All this is just a curtain to him. And the day is coming, the Bible says, he's going to draw back that curtain. And he's going to come in all his glory. And he's going to reveal himself in all of his glory. What are the heavens like to God? They're like a spider web on a piece of steel. God just wants to do away with it. He does away with it. This is the largeness... Verse number 23, when it comes to these powerful world leaders, you know, like the Babylonians who had conquered Israel, when it comes to these mighty world leaders, it says in verse 23, he brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. All the rulers he brings to nothing. The mighty people of this world, the kings and the dictators and the presidents, who think they've got important tasks ruling the events of this world, are nothing compared to the weightiness and the authority of God, and he can dismiss them any time he wants. When he raised up Egypt, he used Egypt, and when he had finished with Egypt, he said, away with you. Sent ten plagues, and they were destroyed. He raised up the Babylonians to bring chastisement on the earth, and when God had finished using the tool, he just said, Away with you. And that's the God that we serve. Verse 24, talking about these powerful world leaders who all of a sudden aren't powerful at all. It says, scarcely can they be planted. Scarcely should they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. And then God decides to blow on them. They wither away. And the whirlwind will take them away like the stubble. As arrogant and as powerful as the world leaders may think of themselves, the truth is this. They're not even fixed in their place. It is God who sets them up. And it is God who takes them down. They have no firm root. And when God wants to dismiss them, He just blows on them and their kingdoms vanish. 
This is the God that we worship this morning. So we asked again in verse 25, Well then, to whom will you liken me? Or to whom can I be equal? Says the Lord. Can you find any picture, an equivalent that would fully describe the bigness and the majesty of our God? The fact is, He alone is holy. He is completely other than all creation. He's morally perfect. And here's the wonderful thing about it. And He intends to share His character with you and me. Does that blow your mind just a little bit? That this God, who's above history, who's above creation, is morally perfect. And He intends to share His nature and His glory and His character with you and me. What kind of a God is this that we serve, that we worship? And so, there's a challenge in verse 26 when we're so accustomed to looking in at ourselves and focusing on the trials and the difficulties that we're having. He says, change your focus. In verse 26, look up. He wants you to look at the universe for a minute. Look at the stars up there. Look up your eyes on high and see who has created all of these things. And he mentions the stars and look at the stars. Well, have you ever tried to count them? I'm going to give each one of them a name. Have you tried to count them? Have we even discovered them all yet? The galaxy? He says, look up. And it says, our God brings out their host by number. He's got them numbered. He knows how many there are. And more than that, He calls them by name. That's the bigness of our God. This is amazing. He knows the hairs of our head. He's got them numbered. He knows the thoughts in our head. He knows when you get up. He knows when you sit down. He knows what you're feeling. He knows everything about you. His knowledge is beyond our comprehension. Now as far as these great stars, this universe that He's created, they're not self-existent. They're not deities to be worshipped as many pagans over history have done, they have been created. And they come and they go at the command of the Lord. They obey Him like sheep obey a shepherd. They obey Him like soldiers obey the general in the army. They're not numberless. You and I would say they're vast without number. But God says to you they're without number. But I've got the number. I know it. They move, and as vast as they are, they all move according to my dictates. I put them in the paths that they're in. God is not only all-powerful, but He's all-knowing. This is the God that we worship. This is His nature. So when you get down to verse number 27, where I start reading, in the light of God's nature that has been just described when we are in difficult times when we go through periods of chastisement or periods of God dealing with this or periods of just trials in this world the tendency is to focus on the trial instead of focus on the Lord that's the tendency and so does God wish to act 
Verses 1 to 11 have already told us that truth. Yes, he does want to act. It's his nature to restore. And he's going to do it by personal intervention with your life. Yes, he does want to act. And then we ask the question, well, is he unable to act? Because I cry out to him and nothing seems to be happening. Well, the verses that we just read hopefully have answered that for you. There's nobody like the Lord. So in the light of what's going on, Isaiah is asking the people who are losing strength under the trial that they're going through, he's asking questions like this. How could you possibly believe that God is ignoring you? Don't you understand God is utterly other than we. Now listen to this. These verses are going to teach us this. God does not work on our timetable. I thought that would get a hallelujah or something. God does not work on our timetable. Let me say it again. That's why we got to wait. God is not working on our timetable. Because the truth is this, is that God is working according to a far bigger agenda than what you and I can appreciate. My favorite story, you've heard me say this, is the book of, story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. When Joseph went through so many difficult times, he didn't know that God's agenda was to make him the prime minister of the most powerful nation of the world. And in that position of power to be able to save his brothers so God could keep his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had no idea that that was God's agenda. And when you and I pray, we're praying according to the limited knowledge that we have of the situation in front of us. But God has a far greater knowledge of what's going on, a far greater picture of what's going on, a far greater agenda of what is going on, and He answers our prayer, but not according to our limited sight. He is answering our prayer according to the vastness of the largeness of His agenda, which we don't even yet appreciate. I don't know if I ever told you, but the end of the story is glory. That there is an end in view that's far bigger than what you and I could possibly see. The Bible says He does exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And yes, He is answering our prayer, but He's going to answer our prayer not according to our vision, but He's going to answer our prayer according to His large vision that we can't quite grasp yet. So God's not working in our timetable. He's adjusting us to His timetable. Are you hearing this? They that wait upon the Lord. So God is not working in our timetable. He has none of our limitations. He's at work. And we can depend upon Him. So verse 27 that we read earlier, the tendency... When we go through trials because we don't see the big pictures, we focus on the difficulty of the trial. And we say, God, don't you notice what I'm in? Don't you notice what I'm going through? I'm crying out to you, where's the relief? 
Anybody ever do that? Don't you notice this? How can we say this? But what's interesting here, my way is hidden from the Lord. My just claim is passed over by my God. It's not just any God, but it's my God. The God that is in covenant with us. Here is the God that you and I are praying to. He has given himself to us as our special possession. Did you hear that? God has given himself to us as our special possession. Our God. So, how can we say that our way, what we're going through, is not observed by God, it's hidden? Contrary to what you and I may think when we're in pain, our way is never hidden from God. But when we don't see the big picture, we're often tempted to say, but what's happening to me is not fair. You know, why is my just claim not even noticed by God? Does God not take note of the afflictions that we endure? Abraham asked the Lord once, God, you're the judge of the whole earth. Aren't you going to do what is right? This phrase, you know, our just claim, or God, you need to do what is right, is a frequent theme all the way through the book of Isaiah. And it means God knows exactly how to administrate everything perfectly. You, might not, you and I might not get it, but he does. The truth is this. Listen to this. God cannot do anything that is unfair. Amen. God cannot do anything that is untrue. And God cannot do anything that is inappropriate. Let me say that again. He can't do that which is unfair. He cannot do that which is untrue. And He cannot do that which is inappropriate. No matter how you and I view it, God is right. God is in control. So He does care. And so He reminds us in verse 28, Have you not heard? Have you not known? You and I are to discipline ourselves not to listen to our emotions at times. But we need to focus on the fact that God is everlasting. That God is the creator. Now listen to this. God never gets tired. Please, Lord. God never gets weary, physically, mentally, or emotionally. He doesn't know what weariness is. He is God. He had to take on a human body to understand what it meant to get tired. But God in His eternity doesn't ever get weary. He's unsearchable. Now listen to this. And the wonderful truth is this. that His nature is to give strength to His people. That's His nature. His nature is to give strength to His people. His nature is to support. His nature is to refresh. His nature is to renew. Since He is tireless, never wearies, His wisdom is unfathomable. He can do whatever He wants in His own time. So when it appears to be a delay, now notice the word I said appears. We sang it this morning, my God will not delay. When it appears that there is a delay. In the book of Habakkuk, which we're going to share from tonight, it says the vision is for an appointed time. It will not delay. The vision is for an, important, uh, an appointed time. But when, it, from our perspective, it looks like God is delaying, we must understand it doesn't mean that God is not aware and it doesn't mean that God is not able. 
The fact is, he never faints. If he fainted, even for a moment, the whole universe would collapse. Would cease to exist. Chaos would set in if he ever got tired. I noticed the sun came out this morning. Miracle of miracles for over here. It came up this morning. God's still in control. He hasn't lost any of his strength or his power. It is characteristic of fallen creation to get tired. We wear out, we become exhausted. But God is not part of that creation. Amen. We are to wait on the Lord. Now look at verse 29. When we're going through things and we get mentally and emotionally weary, it says, well, this is his nature. This is the God that we worship this morning. He gives. He gives. The God that you and I worship is a God who gives. You might be excited about that one. He gives. The God that we serve is a God who gives and gives and gives. And what does He give? It says to those who are weak, He likes to give power. To those who have no might, He wants to increase your strength. God is not weak. As a matter of fact, He's got so much superabundant energy all left over after He administrates the whole universe. He's got so much energy left over, He says, think I'll give some to my servants. That's the God that we serve. He never suffers lack. But His nature is to sustain those who do suffer lack. He is never weak, but His nature to share His power with those who are weak. This is God's nature. He gives, He gives, He gives. Then you get down to verses 30 and 31. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. You know, I'm getting up there a little bit in age, and I've discovered that I don't quite have the same energy I did 30 years ago. I don't know if everybody finds that out or not. I don't quite have the same energy I did 30 years ago. But even the youth will faint. Even the youth get weary. Even the young men shall utterly fall. Even the most vital people on the earth eventually wear out. Their strength has limits. Earlier in this chapter, we didn't read it, but God said all flesh is as grass. Just easily wore out. Even the people who are the most vigorous on the planet earth, they have their limitations, they're mortal, they're fallible. If the best of us will collapse, is there any hope? Yeah, there is. Because the God that we worship never gets tired, never gets weary, doesn't understand what weariness is in his eternalness. And he's a God who gives. And there is a source of power, and there is a source of energy, and there is a source of life that doesn't come from this world that God created. It comes from the God himself whose nature it is to give. Amen. Amen. He makes his strength available to the failing ones of the earth. There's only one condition that you and I are to have in order to receive this strength. What is that condition? They that wait. Wait. 
Don't you love that word patience? Don't you love that word wait? Because remember, God is answering our prayers. Not to the thing, the agenda that we see in front of us. What we see in front of us is just one cog in the bigger wheel of God's big agenda. And he's answering the prayer according to his vast vision. You and I have a tendency to interpret everything according to the one cog in the wheel we see right in front of us. God is answering our prayer on the big scale that you and I possibly don't even see. And so, since God is working things out according to His plan, you and I have to learn what it means to wait. How many wanted God to act yesterday? Years ago. (laughs) You know... But God's working something far greater. So what does it mean to wait? I'm just going to wrap this up. What does it mean to wait? It means that you must acknowledge that you are completely dependent upon the Lord. It also means that you will surrender your agenda for His. It means that you must allow God to decide the time and He must decide the terms. God is everlasting. He doesn't measure time like you and I do. To wait on God is to admit that we have no other help, either in ourselves or anybody else. Even the nations of this world with all their vast armies aren't going to help you. Your help is not there. We are helpless until He acts. Somebody know that's the truth. We're helpless until He acts. So what we do is we place our confidence in the God who acts for those who wait for Him. We're not killing time. While we're waiting, we're daily choosing the God who has chosen us. While we're waiting, we are daily choosing to joyfully embrace His commandments so we can demonstrate His character. While we're waiting, we behave according to the fulfillment of His promise, not according to the pressure we're under, but we behave according to the fulfillment of His promise. We make the choice. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. But the beautiful promise with all of this, in verse 31, the the old King James says, they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Let me just give you a thought or two about that word, renew. It's better translated in modern English as perhaps replace your strength or exchange your strength. means our worn out strength is replaced with His mighty power. Come on now. No wonder Paul prays in Ephesians 1, the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened that you would see the exceeding greatness of His power, which works towards you. That same power by which Jesus was raised from the dead, that same power by which Jesus ascended far into the heavens, above all principalities and powers, that same power is communicated into our hearts, into our spirits, to those who learn to wait upon the Lord. Our worn out strength 
is to be replaced with His mighty power. He takes away that which is useless, replaces it with His own life. That's why we wait, because a divine exchange is taking place. We're exchanging our life for His. That's what happens in the process of waiting. So, far from being crushed by our circumstances, far from being crushed, those who can depend upon God, like an eagle, you can stretch out your wings, and you're just going to catch the current, and you're going to ride the storm. You're going to ride it. You're going to catch the current of the whole thing, and you ride the storm. You mount up with wings, like eagles. Instead of being overcome, you're carried by the thing. Why? Because of the exceeding greatness of His power that comes to those who wait upon the Lord. You can find His strength in the busyness of life. Sometimes life is a hectic pace, isn't it? Ever find yourself running from the busyness of life? Well, you can run and not be weary. Or just the daily routines of life, the everyday things we got to do, you can walk and not faint. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The mighty God, it's His nature, as great as He is, He wants to communicate His strength into your soul. Isn't that powerful? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, mount up with wings as eagles, run, not be weary, walk, and not faint. Church, this is our God. This is our God. Hallelujah.